WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio proudly presents the Marian Hour with Father Dwight Campbell, spiritual advisor to WSFI and pastor of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and St. Therese in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome back for our second show of this Marian Hour. And I'd like to begin with a prayer, uh, one of my favorite Marian prayers. We have some guests here that we can all pray this prayer together. Everyone knows that I'm sure, and you can pray it out there with me. Uh, it's called the Memorare, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Remember, Remember most, most gracious Virgin Mary, Mary that, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy, thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, um, today is February 12th, and yesterday we celebrated the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes. And even though it's a day after that feast, I'd like to uh, begin the show talking about uh, that great series of apparitions that took place in 1858. Our Lady appearing to now Saint Bernadette Subaru. Uh, when she appeared to Bernadette, she was just a 14-year-old girl. She came from a very poor family. In fact, her father, uh, Francois, had been a miller but had lost uh, his business practice because, I, I'll just mention this, this is uh, beautiful. Um, one of the reasons the father uh, went into poverty with, with the family was that um, he and, and his wife, who helped to run the business with him, were overly generous to creditors, and they would just kind of write things off. Oh, take some grain, pay us back when, when you're able to, and they ended up really going bankrupt, you could say. Uh, they, they lost the business. They ended up in the, uh, the jail there, uh, an abandoned jail, and they were living there under rather, oh, very stark conditions. And on the morning of February 11th, 1858, um, uh, Francois, who was a day laborer now, he just tried to pick up work when he could, uh, he mentions that they're out of wood. And Bernadette, with her sister and another girl, they go out to gather wood at uh, the grotto, which is next to the River Gave. And the grotto, uh, that area is called the Masabiel. Well, <coughs> Bernadette describes this first appearance of Our Lady. And here I'll, I'll just mention, I'm reading from a book called Bernadette of Lourdes. It is one of the best little works that uses original sources and tells the, the, the beautiful story of Bernadette and Our Lady's appearances. It is authored by um, Father or Canon, appropriately, René Laurentin, one of the great Mariologists who just died a couple of years ago. I think he almost reached 100, if I recall. I was uh, blessed to have had um, him, Father Laurentan, or Canon Laurentan, as a professor at the International Marine Research Institute, a very holy man and um, a, a great theologian who wrote a number of works. He's regarded as an expert on Lourdes. And he recounts the first apparition. And this is what Bernadette says. She's relating this from, from her memoirs. Bernadette says, I, I came back from opposite the grotto. I began to take off my shoes and stockings. They had wa waded through uh, the river. And <clears throat> after removing the first stocking, I heard a noise, something like a gust of wind. And then 
Bernadette looked behind her, the poplars were not moving, and she bent over to take off the second stocking, and the same noise again. And this time she sees branches moving directly across from her, and they are the branches of a wild rose, rose bush at the bottom of a niche uh, in, the, in the grotto. And above the right edge uh, of the grotto, this niche, Bernadette sees uh, a girl, as she describes her, dressed in white. And this girl, who is Our Lady, but Bernadette doesn't know that, opens her hands in a welcoming gesture that seems to invite Bernadette to come closer. And <clears throat> Bernadette, she says that she, she's blinking her eyes, she's rubbing her eyes a couple of times, she's thinking she may be having a vision of some type, uh, but she, she is just unsure of what's going on. And then she describes it, I'll, I'll read her account here. I put my hand into my pocket and I found my rosary there. I wanted to make the sign of the cross, but couldn't raise my hand to my forehead because she was so um, you know, awestruck by, by what she was seeing. And she said, shock got the better of me. My hand was trembling. The vision made the sign of the cross. Then I tried a second time, and I could make the sign of the cross. And that fearful shock I felt disappeared. I said my rosary in the presence of the beautiful lady. And <clears throat> as she described her, she had a, uh, a uh, yellow rose on top of each of her feet. And this matched the color of her rosary beads. And while Bernadette's praying the Hail Marys one after another, Our Lady isn't praying. Um, she's just fingering the beads as, as Bernadette goes through each Hail Mary. And then um, she disappears. Well, Bernadette tells her sister, who was with her, and a friend, that, you know, she says, did you, did you see that, that lady or that, that young girl? And they say no, and they're laughing at her. And, um, well, it uh, is related by Bernadette then to, to her family that she, she saw this, this lady on this date. And, well, a few days later, she returns to the grotto, Sunday, February 14th, and... <clears throat> At the second decade of the rosary, um, people who are there see Bernadette's face change. And she says, there she is. And um, with her rosary on her arm, and she's looking at you. This is what Bernadette is telling the people that are gathered with her. And Bernadette's companions, they can't see anything. And Bernadette, because she's not sure what this is, she has a vial of holy water with her. And she starts sprinkling it toward the, the woman who's appearing to her to make sure this isn't some type of a uh, demonic appearance. But she says, the more I sprinkled, the more she smiled. And I kept sprinkling until the bottle was empty. Well, <clears throat> the following Thursday, the 18th of February, uh, after attending Mass, Bernadette goes to the grotto and barely begins her rosary, and the people with her hear her say, once again, she's here. And then Bernadette was told by a number of people, uh, ask this young girl her name. And Bernadette brought uh, a pen and a paper and holds it out, and asks the vision to write down her name. And <clears throat> um, the reply that she got was, it's not necessary. Okay. Well, um, the request to make uh, Bernadette um, request this, this name um, was then further responded to by Our Lady um, who asks her, would you have the graciousness to come here for 15 days? Now, 
this is the, the third apparition, and Our Lady asks her to come for 15 more days. The total amount of apparitions of Our Lady to St. Bernadette is 18. And then, then the, the apparitions um, continue, but I'm going to skip forward now to um, uh, an interview that the local police commissioner has with Bernadette because word's getting out that she's seeing something and, and the police get involved. Remember at Fatima they did the same thing except these were uh, Masons who were, were trying to quell uh, the whole uh, uh, phenomenon and, and uh, have the children deny that they were seeing anything. Well, they didn't treat Bernadette in the same way, but the commissioner noted that when he's questioning Bernadette, Bernadette did not refer to the girl that she sees, this, this vision, as, as a she. Uh, she used the word aquero in the patois, the, the local French dialect, which is a neuter pronoun. It means that thing, okay, literally. So Bernadette was very careful not to, uh, she didn't know what this was appearing to her. Okay, so Bernadette's referring to uh, the, the young girl as that thing to the police com commissioner when he's questioning her. Well, there's, I'll skip forward to the eighth apparition, Wednesday, February 24th. There's about 300 people gathered at this time. After her recitation of the rosary, she's in ecstasy. Uh, Bernadette puts her face to the ground and uh, the apparition then uh, disappears and not before Bernadette hears the word penitence, pray to God for the conversion of sinners. Then she asks Bernadette, go kiss the ground as a penance for sinners. So people see Bernadette doing this. Uh, the next day, Thursday, February 25th, there are 350 people there, and Bernadette recites the rosary as usual. On her knees, she crawls up the sloping ground. People see this to the back of the grotto, kisses the ground, and then she begins to walk back to the river. That's the river gave. And uh, people see her. Well, she, she turns around then and goes back into the grotto, and she begins digging, bends down. There's muddy soil there. Our Lady asked her to drink from the water. Well, she, she tries three times and she there's just a little trickle of water there and it really has a stench and she doesn't want to drink. On the fourth attempt, she finally is able to drink a little bit of the water and uh, then she she's told to wash her face with it. Well, her face is all muddy. Those of you who have seen uh, the the, the Song of Bernadette, it's, it's, it's portrayed very well, uh, that whole scene where people are just thinking, well, she's crazy, you know, she's washing her, washing her face in mud. And Bernadette offers this explanation. Aquero, the thing, told me, go drink at the spring and wash yourself in it. And not seeing any water, I went to the cave, but she indicated with her finger that I should go under the rock I found a little water. I could scarcely cup it in my hand three times. I threw it away. On the fourth, I managed to drink it. And in the afternoon, people, uh, because Bernadette went home, people returned to the grotto, and they began to dig more in the hole that Bernadette had dug, and a gurgle of water began to flow forth, and it's been flowing ever since. I think it's, if I recall, 18,000 gallons a day pour out of this, this um, um, little uh, hole that Bernadette began to, to dig in, in the grotto. And a couple of people took bottles of water that day. And one of them, uh, the son of a, of a, of a local um, businessman, wore a patch over his eye, and in the days that followed, um, the boy was no longer wearing a patch. He had applied some of that water from, from the, uh, the stream that was flowing forth from that hole that Bernadette dug. 
But the, the most important of the apparitions took place, uh, I think, significantly on March 25th. And uh, I'll just ask our, our studio audience here, what's his, what is significant about March 25th? Immaculate, <coughs> Immaculate Conception. No, the, the Immaculate Conception is is December eighth. Oh, okay, okay. Right. Uh, March twenty fifth is the, the feast of the Annunciation of the Incarnation and birth of our Lord, the greatest event in the history of the world, as I like to say. So, uh, Mary appears to Bernadette on this day, and uh, Bernadette asks her, Mademoiselle, would you be so kind as to tell me who you are, if you please? And she smiles, she doesn't reply. Bernadette repeats the question insistently a second time, then a third time. And Mary, the vision, is still smiling at her. The fourth time, Bernadette asks the question. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll just say this, having read this this. Uh, book Bernadette of Lourdes, uh, Bernadette had a strong personality. You know, she, she didn't, um, um, uh, sh she wasn't uh, shy about, you know, stating her opinion as, as to uh, what she thought and how she felt. So uh, you could almost say that Bernadette was getting a little testy because asks Our Lady three times gets no response but a smile. So the fourth time, um, she says, as Bernadette describes it, our Lady stops smiling, joins her hands open out, uh, well, her, her joint hands open out and extend toward the ground. Then she joins them again around her bosom and raises her eyes to the sky and says, I am the Immaculate Conception. And she speaks in the local patois, okay, the local French dialect. Okay, So, um, and uh, Bernadette, because the local priest, uh, Father Pei Ramal, you know, told her to ask the, the, the vision her name, okay, Bernadette didn't want to forget this because she was a 14-year-old girl. She didn't know her catechism very well. And this, this phrase was something that was totally unfamiliar to the ear of of Bernadette, and uh, I'll just say that the the dogma of the Immaculate Conception had been defined by Pope uh, Blessed Pius the Ninth four years earlier, and uh, people you know had probably heard on December eighth that was the feast of of our of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, that term Immaculate Conception, but Mary didn't say that word Immaculate Conception. Uh, she, she says, she, um, well, or she, she didn't say, I should say, um, Mary did not say, I was immaculately conceived. Mary's words, I am the Immaculate Conception, would have been, you know, and, and just something odd for, for Bernadette to hear, and it was odd for the priest. Because when she repeated those words to the priest as she's walking right from the grotto to, to the priest's rectory, uh, she keeps repeating it over and over, okay? Uh, so she'll get it right. And the priest begins to question her and um, says, well, uh, do you know what this means? And Bernadette shakes her head. No, she doesn't know what this means. Then how can you say the words if you do not understand them? And Bernadette says, I kept repeating them along the way. Bernadette wanted to make sure she got it right. And so the priest was aghast at this too, and it was one of the things that really attested to the truthfulness of Bernadette's words because um, I could imagine myself, if, if I were that priest, you know, if, if, if Our Lady would have said, I was immaculately conceived, or I am the Virgin, the Immaculate One, conceived without sin, that would make sense. But to say, I am the Immaculate Conception was just something that, you know, no pope had ever said, no, no one had ever uh, uttered those words, you could say, before Mary did to Bernadette on March 25th, 
1858. And so in his letter to the local bishop, uh, the priest writes that, you know, this, this account of what Bernadette told him, and, you know, he, he asked the question, how might we apply it to the dogma promulgated in Rome, you know, by the Pope, Pius IX? We define that the Blessed Virgin was preserved from every taint of original sin from the first moment of her conception. So he's writing for advice to, to the bishop, um, you know, how do we interpret these words? Because they are a mystery, okay? And one other thing I'll, I'll point out here, um, you know, Bernadette, in the years that followed, she was requested to make uh, or to, to um, assist uh, a sculptor in making a statue of how Our Lady appeared to her. And uh, the sculptor described Bernadette uh, in very beautifully. Uh, you know, he he asked Bernadette, "Well, how did she how did she hold her hands? How did she did she join them when she said, 'I am the Immaculate Conception'?" And the sculptor wrote the following: Bernadette got up with the greatest simplicity. She joined her hands, raised her eyes to heaven. I have never seen anything more beautiful. One could not have the least doubt in the world about the signal favor that she had received. Okay. So Bernadette was imitating what she had seen Our Lady do. And, and the sculptor himself was so taken by uh, Bernadette's uh, manner of, of imitation He's saying, well, she couldn't have made this up. This was so beautiful. The way she, she put her hands together and raised her eyes up and said, this was how Our Lady looked to me. Okay. So the, he, he made that famous statue, and um, others have been made uh, after that, uh, depicting Our Lady as she appeared to, to St. Bernadette on this great appearance on March 25th, 1858. So, Father, that's so beautiful. So, just a quick uh, comment. So, she is the created Immaculate Conception. Well, I'm, I'm going to get, in, I'm gonna get, get into, into that. that. Yes, I'll, I'll get into that. But before we do that, because that is Maximilian Kolbe. Uh, before we before we I segue into Maximilian Kolbe, um, I'm I'm going to talk about the the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Okay. Very beautiful. Because that's that's the background to this. Our Lady's appearance to St. Bernadette is really a confirmation of the dogmatic proclamation made in 1854 by Pope Pius IX. And um, uh, let me just say a few words about that, or are we going to take a little break? We'll take a break in okay. about a minute, Father. Good. Okay. okay. But Very I good. do, while, while the clock's ticking here, I heard a beautiful homily at Marytown by your friend, Father Anthony Yelnick yesterday ah. and uh, Brian you were there yes it was great but the connection he made I had never connected in my mind he said that the doctrine of when she said I am the Immaculate Conception that affirms the church's position that life begins the soul enters the body at conception and I never I never put a linkage between that. If she was conceived immaculately, that means that the soul must enter the body for her to have been immaculately conceived at the point of conception, which the church teaches all along. Yes, yeah, I've I've made that point, and you could say I the same thing about that. the. You could make the same thing the point about the incarnation, because Christ uh, receives a human nature with a body and a soul at his conception, but with Mary, it's even. You could say more, more. Well, um, it comes right from heaven. It comes right, right from heaven in, in her words. So I know someone has said Thomas Aquinas said that he didn't know when the soul entered the body, but maybe he needed to hear it from Our Lady herself. So we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Father Dwight Campbell. This is the Marian Hour, and we'll be right back. As we got towards Christmas, one of the parishioners suggested, why don't we 
take out an ad on the local radio station. I have to say, I really didn't have an awful lot of optimism about it. But I was well advised. We went, we cut a little message. Once it started playing, I began to hear from the Catholics in the parish about how great this was that we're out there, how great this was that, that we are showing signs of life, how great this is to encourage us who are here in the parish already. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at wsfiradio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. Join us for our second annual First Communion Fashion Show. St. Therese of Lisieux Catholic Church in Kenosha, Wisconsin will display a selection of 16 different styles of First Communion dresses and veils provided by Holy Family Catholic Bookstore on Sunday, February 16th, beginning at 1 p.m. Bring your daughters, granddaughters, and goddaughters to this beautiful preview hosted by the ladies of St. Therese Parish. Admission is free and refreshments will be served. The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is blessed with the opportunity to participate with WSFI Catholic Radio in the new evangelization. Holy Family is your local resource for books, CDs, and DVDs from Catholic Answers, Ignatius Press, and all of the other fine publishers featured on Catholic Radio. Holy Family also has the area's largest selection of baptism, communion, and confirmation gifts. Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is located at 19 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. Well, hello and welcome back to the Mary Now. We're with Father Campbell. Father Campbell, before we get into it, we just did a spot. You have an event that's coming up in your parish. I thought it might be a good time for you to mention to our audience. Yes, the fashion event of the year. It is the, the, <laughs> the first communion uh, fashion show. Uh, dresses, commun first communion dresses are going to be um, paraded uh, on a stage with, with our little models, our, our little girls that uh, are of First Communion age or thereabouts, and uh, this will give an opportunity for girls to choose their First Communion dresses. We're hoping to have a couple of boys present this year, too. We're, I think we're still working on that to be the uh, escorts of the girls as they go, go up to the stage. St. Therese Church, um, next, this coming Sunday at... 130, I 130. think. 130, okay. 130, yes. 130. I remember my first communion, and I remember my first communion dress. Ian, do you remember your first communion? Oh, I remember my first communion, but not necessarily my dress. <laughs> See, but if you went to this Holy Family Catholic Bookstore-sponsored event, we have to put in a plug for Weston and Riccio there. Yes, yes. It was their idea for this. It so. was their idea. Uh -huh. And I don't know if they have. I've never heard of that. I don't know if that's something in the area. I think it's a first. A yes. First. It's, it's a it's phenomenal. A, an original idea. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. And it's a precursor of things to come in your life. It's kind of like a precursor. You're getting married to Christ. Is that what the significance is of the dress? Um, it's like well, a br little bridal dress. A little bridal dress, yes. Um, I'm not sure if it's related to the bride of Christ, a future religious. It's just you know, that, that uh, they're, they're putting on a, a beautiful white dress in honor of receiving our Lord for the first time. Yeah, okay. yes. such a beautiful moment. Tom? I remember the, the nuns actually gave, the nuns actually gave us a white tie to each one of the boys. And uh, sister said, well, you gotta be careful to keep this as clean as it is today and bring it, uh, you know, when you see me again and have it. So. Now, if I could do that in my soul, I'll be all set, <laughs> Father. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, so we're continuing. If you're just tuning in, Father Campbell has a newly launched show. It's called The Marian Hour. And I, I love it already. Thank you for bringing that beautiful book. You were talking about today's the 12th. Yesterday, we officially celebrated the 11th, Our Lady of Lords. Uh, as you mentioned, I think she'd be, how many times? She, 18 times? 18 times Mary appeared to St. Bernadette, yes, mm -hmm. at the Grotto. Um, Masabiel, it's called, next to the River Gave. And um, it was the apparition on March 25th that Mary, when asked her name, she said, I am the Immaculate Conception. And um, in this way, 
affirming the dogma that had, pro had been proclaimed four years prior by uh, Pope Blessed Pius IX. You could say this was a heavenly confirmation of the proclamation of that dogma. And I just wanted to say something about dogma doctrine. Okay, um, Every dogma is a doctrine, but not every doctrine is a dogma. A, a doctrine is um, something taught by the church that the faithful must accept. Uh, it's to be believed, but the level of teaching isn't as high. A, a dogma is um, something that the church proposes for belief as formally revealed by God. And uh, that uh, the faithful uh, must believe for, for their salvation, uh, necessary for salvation. And it's just that you could say it's the highest level of teaching. It's like the, the highest uh, formal approval given by um, a church council or by the pope. And uh, this was the case with the Immaculate Conception. And uh, the Immaculate Conception was already a doctrine, a teaching accepted in the church. But with the proclamation of Pope Pius IX, uh, it was raised to a dogmatic definition. And um, we say formally defined. And here are his words. And he, he issued this on December 8th, 1854. Uh, we declare, pronounce, define that the doctrine, see it was already doctrine, which holds that the most blessed virgin in the first moment of her conception by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God, and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. Uh, that apostolic constitution, you can just look it up on the, on the internet. If you, if you Googled it, there are some translations of it. I don't think there's an official translation, an English translation from Rome yet. Okay, they're, they're going back um, in time doing their translations. But y I think EWTN has one. Uh, you can just look on, on websites and get on, get on the web and, and find the whole Apostolic Constitution, which is really a beautiful read because uh, it, it speaks of the historical development of the dogma. Um, it, it wasn't something explicitly revealed. You can read through the Bible. Nowhere does the Bible say Mary was immaculately conceived. It is an implicit revelation. It has scriptural bases, yes, but uh, it was something held and believed uh, from the very beginning of the church. It was revealed by God. Just it was not revealed with the explicit language that that we that was used to to define it, uh, for example, um, early church writers, the patristic fathers, for example, you know they compared Mary, her obedience, um, her unstained purity, to Eve, her disobedience and her sinfulness. Mary is called the new Eve. You could say these are the beginning seeds of the, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. And you know, we can go through some famous you know, holy uh, writers, saints from, from the early centuries. Um, and here's an example, Hippolytus from, from the year 250 thereabouts, okay, compares Mary to the Ark of the Covenant. He says, the Lord was without sin, made of imperishable wood as regards his humanity, that is, of the virgin. The virgin was his tabernacle, exempt from pu pu putridity and corruption. So Mary, uh, while the, the words immaculate conception and original sin were not in use then, the same concepts were being uh, put forward by the early writers. St. Ambrose calls Mary a virgin not only undefiled, 
but a virgin whom grace had made inviolate, free of every stain of sin. Um, in the East, Mary was called the Panagia, pan meaning um, uh, whole, okay, or all, and hagia meaning uh, holy. Panagia, Panagia means all holy. A similar term in the in the Western, the, the Latin would be tota pulchra, Mary's all beautiful. And actually, um, in the evening prayer of the Missal um, for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, we, we read the words, uh, you are uh, all beautiful, Mary, um, and the spot of original sin is not in you. Well, in the East, uh, they, they had the concept of Mary being pre-purified. Okay? She was purified, uh, not needing any purification after her conception, in other words. Uh, St. Ephraim of Syria, for example, says, Mary, all pure, all immaculate, all stainless, all undefiled, all incorrupt, all inviolate. Immaculate, the immaculate robe of him who clothes himself with light as a garment. Why is Mary immaculate? Well, because she is going to be the mother of God. This was God's plan, preserving her from all stain of sin. But as you pointed out, Angela, a few minutes ago, you know there there was a difference of opinion in even among the saints on this, especially in the Middle Ages. Saint Bernard. Um, he saw a problem with calling Mary uh, or saying that Mary was immaculately conceived because everyone has to be redeemed. So uh, did Mary not need Christ if she was, if she, you're saying she was immaculately conceived? So Bernard was against the, the liturgical celebration, actually, which, which uh, began as, as a celebration of the conception of St. Anne and then kind of developed into... Um, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. It arrived in Ireland about 800, and in England about 11th, uh, the 11th century, the 1000s. And um, Aedmir, who is a monk from Canterbury, a friend of, uh, of St. Bernard, well, he was in favor of the Immaculate Conception. And uh, he used the image of a chestnut. Okay. Um, he said, which is conceived, nourished, and formed beneath its burr, and yet is protected from being pricked by it. Okay? And he had a famous saying. Okay? Basically, it's, it's this. Um, God was able to preserve Mary free from sin. He desired to do it. Therefore, he willed to do it. Okay? When I'm preaching on this, this topic, on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, sometimes I'll take a poll amongst the prisoner sitting out there, I said, okay, how many of you, if you could arrange it, would want your mother to be free from all stain of original sin? And everyone raises their hands. I said, okay, how many of you were able to arrange that? How many of you could do that? None of us. Could God do it? Yes. And he did it with the Virgin Mary. And the real breakthrough came with um, blessed now John Dun Scotus, uh, the Franciscan, who said Mary was pre-redeemed. Okay. Uh, she was not freed from original sin, as we are when we're baptized, but rather she was preserved from it. And he used that same uh, line of thinking. I'll just read the Latin, okay? Potuit decuit ergo fecit. Okay. God could do it. That's potuit. Okay. Decuit, it was fitting that he did it with Mary because she would... She was going to be the mother of God, fitting that she should be preserved from all sin. And ergo facet, therefore he did it. God did this. From that time on, it began to be accepted more and more. And um, Pope Pius IX, in proclaiming the dogma, said, and I quote him here, um, it was wholly fitting, he used that, that, that term, fittingness, that the woman who was to be the mother of God, should be kept free from the least stain of sin. Now, <clears throat> um, there's also a scriptural basis for this. 
Can anyone think of a scriptural basis here sitting here? I mean, I does can. anyone know? What, what is the scriptural basis for the Immaculate Conception? Hail Mary, full of grace. That's right. Okay. Um, that is one scriptural basis. But first we're going to go with the Old Testament. How about Old Testament? There's an Old Testament. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, correct. Good, good Mariologist there. The only reason yes. I know is because I obsess over this. I find okay. this so interesting, Father, so I could listen to you all day. Well, the, the, the Proto-Evangelium, as it's called, Proto meaning first, Evangelium, announcement of the good news, mm -hmm. okay, was Genesis 3.15. Immediately after the original sin, God speaks to the serpent, I will put enmities between you, Satan, and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and she will crush your head. Now, she, actually in the original Hebrew, is a neuter pronoun. It will crush your head is properly what it says. But, but it can be um, translated either he or she. He is Jesus. That's the New American Bible. It goes, it uh, it goes, bases it on the Greek, and um, um, but she is an appropriate translation as well. We understand that it is really Christ who defeats Satan by his death on the cross and his resurrection. But Mary is the cooperator, the associate of Christ, the co-redemptrix. So it is fitting that we say, "She will crush your head." And the, um, the statues of Our Lady of Grace show her with her foot over the serpent's head. Okay. That's related to, to Genesis 3.15. Well, how does that relate to Mary's Immaculate Conception, though? And, um, well, Pi I'll, I'll quote Pius IX, okay? He says, the very enmity or total opposition of both Jesus and Mary against the evil one was significantly expressed in this verse. Okay. In other words, if the bitter hatred between Satan and Mary is put on par with that of Satan and Jesus, this must mean that Satan never had any grip or dominion over Mary. She was preserved free from, from all original sin. Never was there a moment of her existence where Satan had a grip on her. Okay. And Pius IX says, this enmity is unmistakable evidence that she has crushed the poisonous head of, of the serpent. Okay. And this, this really begins at her conception. Now, the other, and, and Pius, Pius IX quotes Genesis 3.15 in his Apostolic Constitution. He also quotes... Um, the words of Gabriel at the Annunciation. Hail, full of grace. Okay. Now, he greets her full of grace because she's already full of grace. But when was she full of grace? From conception. Okay. The angel's words are a confirmation that Mary was conceived without sin. And, um, you know, the Greek verb there, kekaratomene, is a perfect passive participle. And what it means, the best translation of that, that Greek verb, okay, perfect passive participle means it, it refers to a past event that perdures, this, this state perdures in the present. Okay. That's what a perfect passive participle really means. And um, it, as, as one scholar defines the term, if you want to define that kekaratomeni, completely and permanently transformed by God's grace. Okay. So Mary was completely, permanently trans transformed from her conception. Now, we have to be careful because Mary is a creature. Okay. She could always grow in grace, and Mary did. So the angel greets her full of grace, but that doesn't mean she can't grow. Only God is has an infinite amount of grace. Mary, near infinite, we say. But she could still grow in grace, and she did. So we have uh, both scripture and tradition, this long tradition of, uh, as, as I say, as I said uh, just a few minutes ago with, um, with um, 
the terminology it wasn't used at the beginning, but the same concepts were put forward by the early church writers about Mary, uh, her her being preserved from all stain of sin, and on top of that we have private revelations. Now, the revelations of Our Lady to Saint Bernadette, which we celebrated yesterday, Our Lady of Lourdes, uh, were, you could say, a confirmation not only of the dogmatic definition, but of a previous apparition of Our Lady that took place 28 years before. And who was that? I don't know. I'm thinking Catherine Labouret. That Catherine Labouret, okay, because Mary appears to St. Catherine as Our Lady of Grace. Okay, she's, mm-hmm. she, she's in this oval figure, which she says, strike a medal as I'm appearing to you. She's got her hands out with rays coming forth from some of her fingers, not all of them. And the ones that weren't coming forth from her fingers represent the graces that are, are not received because they're not prayed for. But she's, got, she's standing over the earth with her foot over the head of the serpent. And then the whole image turns, and on the back side of the medal is, uh, well, on, on the front side, I should say, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Okay, So... Um, that is an affirmation of, of the Immaculate Conception prior to the definition. On the back side of the medal is, is the M under the cross and the two hearts, heart of Jesus surrounded by thorns, heart of Mary with a sword going through it. But uh, that, those, that wording on the front of the medal is, um, you could say, uh, uh, another affirmation of, of the dogma before it was proclaimed. And then with, with Mary's words to, to St. Bernadette, well, we have a, a further confirmation of it, but with a twist, okay? Because Mary didn't say, you know, I was immaculately conceived or I am the virgin who was conceived without sin. She says, I am the immaculate conception. And those words are a great mystery. Uh, Another saint who came along in the early and, you could say, mid-20th century uh, pondered those words, contemplated them, because he was, you could say, enraptured by them almost, tried to, you know, pray and, and ask for light as to what that phrase meant. And... Guess who that is? Maximilian Saint Colby. Maximilian Kolbe. Yes, you know, based upon um, uh, the words of, of Mary, her her apparition to Saint Bernadette, uh, Saint Maximilian founds the the Militia of the Immaculate, um, and the Knights of the, Immac- the Immaculate uh, to spread the message of of Mary the Immaculate One, to have people consecrate themselves to Mary, and really to convert every person on earth. That's why, that's why he did this. Um, but St. Maximilian just could not, uh, for, for so many years, uh, wrap his mind around the meaning of Mary's words. And he, he kept praying for light and, and, and uh to, to, to understand what Mary meant by these words. And he used to s- go before the statue of Our Lady and say, who are you? The Immaculate One. Okay, What do these words mean? I am the Immaculate Conception. And uh, as you pointed out, Angela, um, St. Maximilian, you could say, had his prayer answered the day of his final arrest where he was taken away to Auschwitz. He writes down in, on a sheet of paper, the Holy Spirit, uncreated, immaculate conception. The Blessed Virgin Mary, created, immaculate conception. He has this insight that he's given. Okay. Do we need to take a break or are we, are no, we doing all right? No, we're coming up to the 3 o'clock chaplet. Okay. We only have a few minutes, Father. Okay. Well, I'll, enough, but I love, I'll, keep going. I'll, I'll mention this then, what, what St. Maximilian was saying. Um, okay. um, calling the Holy Spirit the uncreated immaculate conception. 
in this sense. Okay. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Each of the persons of the Trinity are different by reason of their relations with one another. That's what makes the persons different. They're not the same person under three different names. That's a heresy called modalism. And how is the father related to the son? The father is a father. He begets the son eternally. We profess that in the creed, right? The son is eternally begotten. So between the father and the son, the father begets, the son is begotten. That's their, how they're related. That's how the persons differ. The father begets the son as we, you could say, beget ideas in our mind about ourselves. We know ourselves not perfectly. God the Father knows himself perfectly. The totality of his knowledge reflecting on himself is so perfect, it's a person. It's the Word. That's why the, the Son is called the Word, capital W. Now, from all eternity, the Father knew himself. So the Son is eternally begotten. Right now, the Father is begetting the Son. Always has been, always will be. But between the Father and the Son, there is a love that has flowed from all eternity. That love is so perfect, it too is a person. That's the person of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, we say in the Creed, proceeds from the Father and the Son, their mutual love. He is the person of love in the Trinity. So we can say that, that the Holy Spirit, in this sense, is conceived from all eternity, receives the love of the Father and the Son, and fructifies it. Mary is an image of that on the created level. That's the insight that Maximilian Kolbe had. Well, we just understood the uh, uh, Trinity in three minutes or less, Father. Congratulations. <laughs> you got the short <laughs> well version, the short course. Yeah, the you short version. <laughs> so I think what we should do now is it's 3 o'clock. Father, are you in a position to lead us in the chapel? Sure. Okay, yes. why don't we do that at CR Mercy, and I want to say thank you so much for um, we got started a little bit late. Thanks to the Chicago construct. Was it Chicago or Wisconsin? No, no, it was Wisconsin. They Wisconsin. closed a road off on me. Was it Route C? Route C, C yes. Yep. I got stuck on there the other night, actually. Okay. <laughs> there you go. As long as you have a smooth path to heaven, Brian, that's all that counts. Father, would you give us your priestly blessing? Certainly. Through the intercession of the sorrowful and immaculate heart of Mary, may Almighty God bless you all and keep you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Until we meet again, Father, thank you so much. You're very welcome. We might not despair, nor become despondent, but with great confidence, submit ourselves to your holy will, which is love and mercy itself. Amen. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.